This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Now, today, my guest is Regina Rini. Regina holds the Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Moral and Social Cognition at York University. Her research resides at the intersections of moral philosophy, psychology, and political epistemology. She also publishes popular work on topics concerning the social and political impacts of technology. She's currently working on a book about social media and democracy. Good morning, Regina. Morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm all right. It's a cold morning here in Toronto, but it's sunny. Uh, well, it's uh, it's rain for what it's worth. It's rainy and warm, uh, unseasonably warm, I should say, here in Nashville. Thank you so much for joining me today. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's get to it. So I'm old enough to remember a time when the internet was brand new. Um, mm. Back then, uh, it was generally touted as a great leap forward. One might say for democracy, it would open up and thus equalize access, communication, information, and influence. Uh, It would make politics more participatory, so on and so forth. I suppose there are some still today who see the internet as a promising tool for democratic politics, but many of us are skeptical. And you're perhaps especially skeptical. In fact, you've recently characterized your current book project as devoted to showing us that social media is killing democracy. Can you tell us a bit more about that skepticism? 
Sure. So I want to acknowledge up front that I think some of the boosterism about social media and the internet was reasonable and still is. There are still ways in which um, having this, this decentralized way to communicate with other citizens is good for democracy. So I, I'm not just negative about it, but I think that only recently we've started seeing the ways in which uh, distinctive and new ways in which social media in particular is damaging uh, democratic debate. So what I mean by that is our ability to talk to other citizens, to co-citizens, people we share a democratic state with and negotiate or argue or reason together ideally, but basically just figure out how we're going to live together. And what I think is happening is that some of the presuppositions of treating other people as equal participants in, demo in public democratic debate are being eroded by the, some of the psychological and um, audience-related effects of social media. So what's going on is when we talk to each other on social media, we're aware to some extent of the fact that we're not just talking to each other, we're also talking to whoever's listening. And maybe on a closed network like Facebook, where you can control who reads it, that might be a relatively small audience, but on, say, Twitter, it's the entire world in theory. Anyone could pop in and eavesdrop on your Twitter conversation. And I think this awareness makes us act to a certain extent like cable news talking heads. The sort of people who, if you if you turn into you know cable news at 10 p.m., are just shouting over each other about whatever the day's political controversy is. And you can tell they're not really, in many cases, they're not really sincere. I mean, you hear stories sometimes about these famous partisan bruisers on, on cable news who, as soon as the camera's off, are jovial best friends with each other. The, the whole thing was an act. And I don't think we're all that cynical. We're obviously not all that cynical. But I, I think there's a part of us that indulges in the same sort of showing off for the camera, winning a fight, or at least being shown to, to, to fight hard for our, our position in front of a whole lot of people on social media. And so that's the fundamental problem, I think, is that social media has changed us. It, it's taken debate that we might once have had with a few small people with family and friends over a beer, maybe over a Thanksgiving dinner, um, and turned it instead into something we do in public as if we are all just our own little cable news fighters. And that, that I think, has obvious problems. You, I'm, I'm sure people are nodding along saying, yeah, I've seen that happen. Yeah, but it's kind of obvious why, why that's bad. But I, I think we haven't fully understood yet as theorists, as philosophers, as psychologists, or as just interested people, why that's happening that way. So my project is trying to unpack some of the uh, causes of why that's happening, but more importantly, some of the underappreciated effects of why that's happening, how it's changing us. Right. And do you think that there's a uh, an, an element of this that, you know, that social media in particular, and as you characterize Twitter as a sort of like own little, you know, each of us now has our own little sort of political commentary show. It mm -hmm. has given or has provided us a way to feel like we are active political participants. <laughs> um, but it's it's provided an almost sort of a I don't know, do we want to say something as strong as illusory sense of political participation? We're kind of like, just like the, even, I guess maybe like the president sort of t tweeting, you know, tweeting political messages out into, out into the, uh, the, the Twitter sphere. And in light of that, taking ourselves to have acted as citizens in some mm. important or significant way. 
I think that is a worry in some cases. I mean, you, you hear people talking about this with a, the term clicktivism, the idea that all you're doing is basically just clicking like or clicking the frowny face on Facebook or just maybe tweeting how angry you are at something, and then you take yourself to have contributed to the world. You don't do anything else. I, I think there are some concerns there, although from what I understand, there isn't a lot of empirical evidence that uh, social media activity really is drawing away from other forms of activism. So I, I think we're kind of unclear yet whether or not that's what's happening. At the moment, though, I'm more worried about not so much that social media discourse is replacing other forms of civic or political activity, but that it's distorting it. It's that the kinds of conversations we would have once had over over beers at a pub are instead now happening on social media and doing so in a way that is uh, damaging. So let me talk a little bit about, about what I mean yeah. by the sort of damage. Um, I think in order for a democracy to work, we need to conceive of the people we're engaging with as equals. And that doesn't just mean equals under the law, but it means as equal moral reasoners. So I, I'm a moral peer of everyone with whom I share democratic debate. I don't have any special authority to decide the way our society should be organized, and neither do they. And so when we disagree, I think it's absolutely crucial to democratic debate that we all come to that with the same spirit. And not, of course, not everyone lives up to that. Not, I don't, I don't always live up to that. Sometimes I get frustrated and I start thinking of somebody I'm arguing with as obviously misguided and I don't take them seriously anymore. That's bad when that happens. It's human that that happens as well. But I think social media amplifies that and makes that tendency very frequent. And I think you can see that when you watch the way people move very quickly to dismiss those they disagree with on social media. And I think they do so often for reasonable partly reasonable basis. So let me give an example here. Trolls, internet trolls. We all know internet trolls are out there. We know that there are people who are on social media solely to cause grief. They don't actually believe the things they're saying. They don't actually care about the arguments they're having. They're just picking things they know will make people upset and deliberately antagonizing people. And it's just fun for them. And we know those people exist. They do exist. They're all over the place. But they're not as common as people think they are. I think a lot of times when there's an argument on Twitter or Facebook or whatnot and someone says, go away, troll, don't feed the trolls, the person they're calling a troll might not be a troll. Uh, we don't know often, but it's easier to just dismiss someone you disagree with as a troll rather than engage with their arguments. And once you make that move, conceptualizing the person as a troll, as somebody whose motivations are just to make you mad, who they don't really mean what they're saying, then obviously you can't take seriously what they're saying as an equal participant in moral debate. And there's an even worse iteration of this, and then that's a bot. So a right. bot is a, a computer program. It's not even a person. A bot is a computer program that's been set up to automatically tweet or write on Facebook or on Instagram or whatnot about some topic. Until pretty recently, I don't think people paid much attention to bots. They were sort of out there. But then after the revelations of the Russian interference operation in the 2016 U.S. election and the 2016 Brexit referendum, now people are aware that not only are bots out there interfering in public political debate, but they're doing so in a targeted, thoughtful, uh, manipulative, clever way used essentially by intelligence operatives. And so now everyone knows there's bots out there in our discourse. So now, and I see saw this. I was watching for this and saw this in the weeks after the um, last year in February was when the first um, federal U.S. federal indictment of Russian intelligence operatives came out and the 
big, big news. Everyone was paying attention for about two weeks to the fact that Russian bots were everywhere. And I've watched it on social media just cascading all these intense debates where people were mad at each other. Immediately, someone would say, go away, Russian bot, or they'd write something in broken Russian. And they get a bunch of people laughing along with them. People on their side would laugh along with them and give them a bunch of likes and applause and whatnot. And then they would just ignore anything further from the person they were disagreeing with. Yeah, it's kind of what we see sometimes when you teach undergraduates informal logic and they learn what a fallacy is mm, mm-hmm. and they learn the names of fallacies as ways to, yes. especially in the informal sense, as ways to engage with people. Oh, well, that's affirming the consequent or that's mm-hmm. a false dilemma or that's a ad populum. Then all of a sudden, that's just their mode of dealing with disagreement is just shutting other people down by way of some new fancy words that they've used. Yeah, that's, that's a really good analogy, right? And, and it's super obnoxious to try to talk to someone who's just learned a list of fallacy names because yeah. they will they will wield that as a weapon and and i mean technically they might be right sometimes but it's not right. really productive to discourse to be constantly pointing that out especially and i think this is key especially when it's asymmetric that is when you're pointing out how other people are engaging in fallacious reasoning but you're pretty much blind to your own use of the exact same fallacies. And if you're equipped with technical vocabulary that lets you sidestep, get, if the other person you're talking to doesn't have the same technical vocabulary to point right. out when you're making the same logical errors, then you have a kind of a weapon. It gives you power in the debate, but it doesn't actually make the debate more productive, although it will feel that way to you because having this technical vocabulary will let you feel like you, you, you're above the debate and you understand at a higher level what's going on. So yeah, I like right. that analogy. And the so in and in and the, the way you just characterized it I think is is helpful in in, in making clear sort of a different uh, an additional dimension to to mm-hmm. it because that is sort of the the vocabulary, the grammar we might say of fallacy detection and and fallacy repair and all the rest, you know, that is a kind of second order vocabulary, right? Mm-hmm. It is a vocabulary about disagreements. That and those disagreements are about other things. They're about you know mm-hmm. public policy or you know the elevation of a particular city or whatever the the disagreement might be about. But when they're when the fallacy language or the vocabulary of fallacy is deployed in this particular kind of way, it becomes just another first order move. It's just another way yes. of saying you're dumb and I'm not. Yep. <laughs> Right, I, and so there's a conceptual sort of problem to it, and I think the bots example and the troll example is similar. Mm-hmm. Those are diagnostic tools that are mm-hmm. supposed to be, again, as you put it, sort of above the first order dispute. They're a way of diagnosing what's going wrong with the first order dispute, but then they get very quickly people learn to deploy those terms mm-hmm. as if they were just another way of saying liberals are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And what's going on when you make that move is you're psychologizing the person you disagree with rather than responding to the substance of what they're saying. So, I mean, you're right that it becomes like a first order move. It becomes like just saying, no, the content of what you just said is wrong, but it's framed in a way that is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be the step up to the next order where it's diagnosing rather than responding right. to. And so one way of doing that is calling you a troll and that's saying you're not sincere, so I don't actually have to take your objection 
objection seriously because you don't even mean it. And even worse, if you're a bot, well, you're just a computer program. No one's obligated to respond to the moral reasons of a computer program because it's just a program. <laughs> so yeah, so and, and there, there's a, a step short of this though. I, I, I'm still trying to think carefully from the book project about how to understand this. I don't think people always fully believe that the people they're calling trolls and bots are trolls and bots. It's rather what they're doing is saying something like, well, you might be a troll or a bot. You've behaved in a way that is troll or bot-ish. You've given me right. some evidence to think you might be a troll or bot by disagreeing with me, by being so stupid. And you are culpable for giving me that evidence. So even if you're right. not really a troll or bot, the fact that you've behaved in a way that strikes me as trollish or bot-ish is enough for me to not have to listen to you anymore. And that, I think, is super corrosive. Yeah, yeah. And it's also odd because, you know, in one sense, you know, we when we've got our philosopher hats on and not attending really to the pragmatics of things, right? Um, we, you know, we would say, well, well, wait a minute. There's a contradiction here because you're you're deploying mm. the, you know, the, the 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 force of the act of calling someone a bot or a troll is in fact to, you know, indicate that they're disqualified or excluded from the conversation. This is, you know, it's not, these are not people to be arguing with. However, it is a move in the argument. It's an attempt to insult your interlocutor by calling him or her not a proper, not really an interlocutor at all. So it looks like there's almost like a performative, yeah. like, well, you're I, engaging with me in this way, but the, what, the content of what you're saying is that I'm not something it's possible to engage with. I think that's totally right, and I think that points us to the pragmatics, which is that the real yeah. purpose of the speech act isn't to provide a response to the person you're talking to, it's to show up for the audience. It's to right. it's for everyone else to see that you are so clever, you've seen past the bot of the troll, or, or at least that you're willing to grandstand and make an actual person out to be a bot or a troll for the audience. And I, I think that leads us to the other problem with what social media is doing here is that it's it, it, it encourages to play for an audience because the platforms are themselves designed for this. They reward right. controversial, anger-producing, reaction-producing things. The uh, media theorist Sivavadian Nathan has a whole book about Facebook. Uh, Anti-social media is the title of the book. It's really, really helpful for looking at the ways in which Facebook does this. And so I think that, and I think Twitter has similar mechanisms. And, and anyway, so I, I think that the it's not just that these are accidents of human psychology, that we're just accidentally treating each other this way. It's that the system is engineered to a certain extent to encourage us to do this because it drives heated engagement. And there is right. a feedback mechanism that encourages us. So the people who end up with the most followers on Twitter are the ones who are really good at pithily dismissing their opponents so that the people on the same side as them uh, cheer and rally and laugh at it and retweet it. And that, that, that's not a good thing for democracy. Oh, clearly not. So one other facet of your current work is um, fake news. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was a couple months ago, uh, you published a piece in the New York Times called How to Fix Fake News. Mm -hmm. And part of what your your recommendation or your prescription involves is sort of trying to initiate some kind of change in popular norms concerning uh, how testimony is received and weighted and assessed. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that dimension of what you're up to? Yeah, so I've been thinking about fake news in terms of testimony. And for philosophers, testimony is a, a term about how we acquire knowledge through the claims of others. So if you tell me that so-and-so was at the pub last week, and I come to believe that so-and-so was at the pub last week simply because you told me that I've acquired that belief on the basis of your testimony. Mm -hmm. And we 
we get by in life. I, I mean, I, I think philosophers sometimes, until pretty recently, underappreciated this. The extent to which the vast majority of what we know about the world is dependent upon testimony. Things we are taught in school, things we learn about through journal articles. These are all different forms of testimony where my knowledge is not from personally going and observing uh, a famous battle or going and doing a bunch of every single scientific experiment myself. It's from other people telling me that they observed or did those experiments at some other point. And so, so much of our knowledge is dependent on testimonial chains. And I think what's going on with fake news on social media is that people treat a share on social media as if it were a move in a testimonial chain. So there is someone who ostensibly witnessed an event somewhere far away. They wrote a news article about it. Somebody else passed it on. Somebody else passed that on. Somebody else passed that on. And then I get it because I'm their friend on Facebook. And what's going on there is that we treat this as if this were a traditional testimonial chain, but we also know at the same time that people share stuff on social media in a way that isn't the same as real life. So on social media, we, we, we don't always fully mean it when we share something. Uh, famously yeah. on Twitter, people say a retweet is not an endorsement. <laughs> I might retweet something and maybe I'm doing it just because I want you to look at it. Maybe I'm doing it just because I want to have an argument about it. But I don't necessarily mean to say it's right. And that's a deviation from traditional testimony. You don't normally walk up to your friend and say, so-and-so was at the pub last week. <laughs> I, I was told so-and-so was at the pub last week by so-and-so and, and, and not endorse it yourself without right. clarifying that. You'd say, oh, well, well, I was told this by, by Jones, but it might not be true. People don't quite do that on social media. They just say, Jones said this. And unless you know the, the the testimony chain and you know Jones and you know everybody involved, you're not really in a position to understand that, that that endorsement might be qualified. And so I think what's going on here is that people are engaging in a weird sort of testimony, and yet the, rece the recipients treat the information they're reading as if it were a normal sort of testimony, where they could rely upon people to be sincerely vouching for the things they're passing along. And I don't fully understand why we do all of this. I think there's complicated psychological mechanisms we don't understand yet. I Probably because I just think we haven't all adjusted to social media. It's only 10 years old. We haven't quite updated how we engage with information yet. But I think it leads to this really bad set of practices where we... Uh, take testimony that we ought to know, we have pretty good reason to know, is defective, but treat it like it were normal testimony. And that's how we end up spreading uh, spreading fake news. So the suggestion I made was that, and this is the New York Times op-ed, that what we need to do is that the social media networks themselves, Facebook and Twitter and the like, need to put in place some kind of infrastructure that allows us to keep track of the reliability of testifiers. In other words, I need to have some indicator of who has been going around sharing a lot of fake news in the past quickly and easily so that I don't have to go and do the investigation myself because I won't because I'm scrolling through dozens and dozens of stories on Facebook. I'm not going to stop and go and hunt down each one of them individually. Nobody's going to do that. And so what we need is some way of keeping track of it. So what I proposed is basically just a little tiny marker next to people's names, a little tiny dot, an icon. Like right now on Twitter, there are those blue check marks for somebody who has right. a verified identity. It's something like that, but instead it changes color depending on how frequently you have been in the past sharing stories that have been marked by independent fact checkers as fake news. On my proposal, it has no effect on your ability to still post and be listened to. I'm not advocating any form of censorship. It's just a little marker that appears next to your name. It has no effect on my proposal of, of anything you can actually do. But it allows the people who are reading what you're writing to decide to have a quick visual check that allows them to see, is this somebody who in the past has been reliable? And that, that, that's it. That's my proposal. 
Yeah, well, that sounds you know intriguing and utterly sensible. But uh, let me connect a thought uh, that that we were talking about a minute ago. Um, sure. Is there a worry though that you know this very mechanism, the the little dot, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, you know, an independent fact checking organization determines that some particular set of stories that you have very um, enthusiastically widely shared turns out to be fake um, news, you get the dot. I'm wondering if there isn't this worry now that that's going to be just one other weapon that people use, (laughs) right? In the, uh, you know, well, you know, he got a dot, but Mm. we all know that that dot is really just, uh, you know, a a, a very subtle form of of trying to marginalize truth tellers uh, (laughs) online by calling them fake news spreaders. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think for some segment of the social media uh, environment, that's what will happen. So there will be people like, think of the QAnon conspiracy theorists, Alex Jones fans. For them, a red dot is going to be a mark of pride. It's going to right. be you are routinely sharing the things that the, the, the elite think are false. Uh, and, and I don't think there's anything we can do about those people. I don't have any solution for, for people who really want to believe in grand conspiracies that support their worldview. I, I don't think that – I actually think that's a more fundamental problem and not a social media problem. But what I'm more interested in are the broad scope of users, just ordinary people who aren't that into politics, who are seeing political stories mixed in with their their grandkids' photos and cute videos of raccoons and things like that. <laughs> and for them, I, I think in many cases – the hope is if we try this out for them, this actually will be helpful because that if they know what the red dot means, the red dot means this is somebody who has a, a dubious track record. And the hope is that for that sort of user, who, who I believe is the majority user on on social media, the vast mm-hmm. majority probably, that will actually be helpful. All of this right. depends upon the independent fact checkers being known to be truly independent. And that's a big question. Facebook right now has a pretty complicated system involving, I think it's six to eight different independent fact-checking organizations. And there has to be some consensus among them to count something as fake news. Uh, but it's it, that part of the proposal is, already, is absolutely hard to decide on how to manage. That's a very tricky part to manage, which I don't have complete answers about. But it's important to note that already exists. Facebook already has these independent fact checkers and already does, at least internally, flag stories as fake news. So that part is not actually distinctive of my proposal. It's just something we have to try to figure out how to solve in the long term. Sure. Um, Well, uh, Regina, you've been very generous with your time, and I want to thank you for that. And I want to make sure, though, that um, uh, we have time uh, in our conversation to talk a little bit about some of um, your concerns with uh, artificial intelligence technology uh, and how that figures in to uh, these broader concerns that you've been working on. Uh, And in particular, you've recently done some work on um, artificial intelligence technology enabling people to make what are called deep fakes, including what look like minutes-long videos of uh, President Obama giving advice on how to spot deep fakes. That is, then the video itself is a deep fake. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what deep fakes are and what the artificial intelligence uh, dimension uh, to these concerns is? Sure. So, 
Deepfakes are an application of a, of a fairly new, it's maybe about 20 years old originally, but in its current application, it's pretty new AI technology that allows you to generate images and videos. And the way this works is it just takes a data set of, an, of a, usually a famous person who has lots of video available freely on the internet, downloads all of that, and uses that to basically map all the possible ways that their face could move and all the ways that their voice could be mod modified. And so that allows you if you have the right technique, and this is actually free software, it's not that hard to use, you can then create a video or an audio recording of that person doing or saying pretty much anything you want them to do. And so far, this has mostly been used in pornography. This has been used to, to place famous actresses involuntarily into pornographic films by enthusiasts on the internet, which is a really troubling development in its own right. And I think yeah. deserves more, more attention from ethicists to begin with. I'm working on uh, that, I'm working on the topic with the graduate student at York who's working on a paper about the ethics of, of this use of the technology. But in addition to that, the part we haven't quite seen yet has to do with the epistemic effects. And this is where I'm especially worried about the long term. My worry here is that this is going to be used to generate video and audio recordings of public figures doing and saying things they never actually did that will confuse us. And so if you want to think about, um, immediately get a sense of the worry here, think about Richard Nixon. So if you think about Nixon and the White House tapes, Nixon kept some of those tapes hidden for a long time, and he told everybody there was nothing problematic on those tapes. But then infamously, the smoking gun tape eventually came out, uh, recording Nixon instructing basically instructing the CIA to tell the FBI to back off of investigating uh, the, uh, the uh, Watergate situation. And that recording was really important because even Nixon's closest aides felt that he'd lied to them once they heard that recording. A lot of his support fell apart when that came out. Now right. imagine if Richard Nixon had been able to plausibly claim, oh, I know that sounds just like me on the tape. I know that sounds like me doing this thing I, t I claimed I didn't do, but it's faked. My enemies used deep fake technology to generate uh, a faked audio recording of me saying these things. He could not have plausibly said that in the mid-1970s, but in a year or so, maybe even right now, someone could plausibly say exactly that if they're a famous enough public figure who had enough audio recording of them out there that someone could create a deep fake of them. So, yeah, imagine imagine what Trump's response might have been yep. this past November to the Access Hollywood exactly. uh, uh, tape, or maybe next November, right, exactly. uh, given what the technology is like. Ooh. That's, awful. That's exactly right. And and I mean, so my concern is that we're going to enter a kind of twilight zone of the reliability of this technology where it becomes plausible for public figures to dismiss any recording of them doing something bad and further for people to generate deep fakes deliberately trying to undermine the political opponents. Uh, and, and it's important to note that this goes both ways in a partisan environment. Most of the attention we've been given lately to uh, using technology to interfere in elections has been broadly against Democrats, broadly in favor of Donald Trump, and broadly connected to Russia. But there have already been instances of similar techniques. I, here I'm not talking about deep fakes. Right now I'm talking about fake news. But during the Roy Moore Senate race in 2017, there have been recent reports just in the last month in media reports tracing that similar techniques were used to create fake social media profiles to attack Roy Moore, and these were done by Democratic political operatives. These, these techniques are already being used on both sides, the, the, the manipulating people's knowledge, and as soon as people start figuring out how to effectively use fake uh, deep fakes for the same purpose, to create fake audio and video recordings, we'll probably see it from both sides. So it'd be plausible to think by the time of the 
general U.S. 2020 election, and maybe even time for the general election we're going to have here in Canada later this year, there will already be public dispute over whether or not a problematic videotape is real at all. And once we get to that point, my worry is that the bottom drops out for the role that recordings have traditionally played for the last 150 years in regulating public discourse about who said and did what. I just don't know what happens at that point, but I think it's kind of scary that we've all grown up in an epistemic environment where we had these recordings to moderate our claims and hold us responsible, and then all of a sudden they're not going to be reliable anymore. And we just haven't grown up in the way that people in the past had with an understanding that we need other bases for our decision-making. I don't know what happens next. Oh, yeah. It's one question, I guess, about the technology. Are things so dire that uh, the technology is such that there there couldn't even be a reliable marker that mm-hmm. could be easily communicated to the lay public, the non uh, uh, the, the public that's not expert in the technology? Uh, is there any marker uh, that 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 can definitively show that some piece of video has been faked in this way? Or is it just, it, it's getting to the point where the markers are even easy to fake or to conceal? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the technology is kind of wobbly right now. If you look at examples of deep fakes on the internet, some of them you can kind of tell because the edge of the face will look weird. Or there's these really interesting things where like the interior of the mouth, it turns out that it's really bad, hard for deep fakes to do the interior of the mouth well, because not that many people allow themselves to be photographed with their mouths wide open for a long period of time. <laughs> and so the deep, like if you watch some, some of these deep fakes and you pay attention to the interior of the mouth, it just looks weird. But there's an arms race here. As soon as someone points out this deficiency in the technology, then of course the people who want to generate deep fakes will go back to it and look for ways of addressing that. So already that's starting to go away as a way of picking it out. And it's reasonable to think fairly soon there just won't be things you can tell with the naked eye. It might still be true that AI technology can be used to fight back. That is, AI technology can detect uh, signatures of deep fakes that then the human eye can't detect. That seems to be true at the moment, but I, I keep reading disputing accounts by computer scientists who work on this saying, yes, we'll be able to keep up, or others in the same profession saying, no, in the, in the long run, we're not going to be able to keep up with this. Eventually, um, the best we can do is like, this week, we've solved the problem of AI detection of deep fakes, but next week, the new round of deep fakes come out and we have to start all over again. And oh. that that's a real worry. So we're not quite there yet. It's We're not quite to the point of catastrophe yet. But I, I from everything I've read from the people who work on this, we're, we're within a year or two of this happening. And then I, mean, I just don't know what happens. Uh, uh, nor do I. Um, geez. Um, sometimes when we um, encounter a sort of conceptual slash philosophical problem and Two philosophers say, "Well, gee, I don't know what what to say about that." We 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 get to laugh and say, "Well, at least it means that you know we'll still have jobs because there's more <laughs> philosophy to do." Uh, but in this case, it seems like that's just sort of the wrong that you know that that's yeah. the wrong kind of reaction because uh, it is. Um, more catastrophic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hope I'm wrong about this. I hope it turns out that there's some easy way to detect deep fakes, or it turns out that there's some underappreciated feature of public epistemology I'm not paying attention to that allows us to just shrug it off and move on. But I, I'm just not seeing that so far. I'm, I'm, I am really worried about this one. Uh, well, that uh, that's fascinating and and deeply troubling. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us today on the Why We Argue podcast. It's it's been really really nice to talk to you. Sure, of course. It was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for having me. 
And then thank you, listener, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. Uh, I know it's a little ironic to say so, given the content of our conversation just now, but you can follow the project on social media. Uh, You can follow the uh, Humility and Conviction Project on Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility, and that's one word, Public Humility. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.